to My Favorite Theorem, a podcast where we ask mathematicians to tell us about their favorite theorems. I'm your host, Evelyn Lamb. I'm a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, Utah. This is your other host. Hi, I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida. How's it going? Great. I'm excited about a new project I'm working on that is appropriate to plug at the beginning of this, so I will. Um, so I've been working on another podcast that'll be coming out in the fall, may already be out by the time this episode is out. Um, it's with the folks at Latizms, that's L-A-T-H-I-S-M-S, which is a project to um, increase visibility and recognition of Hispanic and Latinx mathematicians. And our guest today is going to be a guest on that podcast too. So uh, I'm very excited to introduce our guest, who is Erica Camacho. Hi, Erica, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, so I'm an associate professor at Arizona State University. Um, my concentration is, uh, well, I'm a professor of mathematics, and my concentration is uh, mathematical physiology, mainly focusing in the retina and modeling the retina and the degeneration of photoreceptors. And I'm in the West Campus of Arizona State University, which is mainly focusing, it's both a research and student-focused type of institution. So it's kind of like a hybrid between but you would call more of a research place and also a, a liberal arts education. Mm, very nice. Which, yeah, city, which so city is that in? We're in Glendale. Okay. So we're in the West Valley of Arizona, yeah, Phoenix. Later I was area. in Arizona not too long ago, and the, the time zone is always interesting there because it's exactly south of Utah, but I was there after uh, Utah, and most of the country went to daylight saving time, and most of Arizona doesn't observe that. So... Uh, it was kind of fun, but I, I also went through um, part of the Navajo uh, nation there that does observe daylight saving time. So I, I changed time zones multiple times uh, just driving straight north, which was <laughs> kind of a fun thing. No, and it's very confusing, especially if, let's say you have an event that you're going through and you're driving to one where it's, let's say, in, in, the, in the some of the Navajo nations, and you don't realize that you might end up missing your event because of the time change. That you're just driving and you're just crossing the border where it actually changed to time, a different time zone. So, no, yeah. it takes a while to get adjusted to. Yes, I, I, I missed one fly one time for the same reason. I was not aware that Arizona didn't observe um, daylight saving, so I... Now I'm aware. <laughs> so I, I, I actually have a theory that, that someone could run a presidential campaign and their sole platform is that they would get rid of daylight saving time and they would win in a landslide. <laughs> well, I mean, people have won on left, but you know, like, <laughs> clearly. Much more. <laughs> so, Erica, we invited you here not to chat about time zones or presidents, but for, to chat about theorems. So, what is your favorite theorem? So uh, before I did my favorite theorem, like I said, I am a applied mathematician, so I focus in modeling. Mm -hmm. In a lot of in in, in modeling, um, there's a lot of complexities, a lot of different sometimes layers and different types of um, levels where you're trying to model things. So many of the systems that you end up um, developing as you're creating this model tend up tend to be uh, nonlinear models. And um, many times I'm looking at um, how different um, processes change over time. So many of the models that I work with are continuous. So I work with differential equations and they tend to be nonlinear. And sometimes that's where the complexity comes in trying to analyze nonlinear systems, right? In the most accurate way, in a way that we're going to get insight into some of the behavior that we're looking for. In terms of uh, physiological systems that relate to the retina and retina degeneration, one of the things that we really are looking at is what happens in the long run. Um, 
How is it the photoreceptors can generate over time? And can we do something to stop uh, the progression of blindness or the progression of chicken diseases that will cause the photoreceptors to degenerate? So we're really asking, what are the long-term solutions of the system and how they, they evolve over time? So we're looking for steady states. We're looking for um, what is their stability and what are the changes in the processes or the mechanisms that govern those systems, which usually are defined by the, by the parameters that end up actually uh, leading to um, a change in, their, uh, in the stability of the equilibria and they could take the system to another equilibria that is stable now. So in, 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 in physiological terms, to another kind of pathological, to another pathological state or another state that uh, we could hopefully um, do a few strategies to prevent blindness. So that's the setting of where I come from. When you asked me this question, what is my favorite theorem? It was hard because there's, as an applied mathematician, we utilize different theory. And all the theory is useful and is very, um, and depending on what the question is, then the mathematics that are utilized are, are very different. So then I thought, well, what is the theorem that is utilized the most in the case when we're looking at nonlinear systems and we're trying to analyze them? And one of the most powerful theorems out there, which is um, one that is almost become addicting, that you use it all the time, is the Hartman-Grobman theorem. And I say addicting because it is a very powerful theorem. It allows us to Take a nonlinear system and in certain cases be able to analyze it and be able to get an, ac an accurate um, depiction of what's happening around the equilibrium point. What is the qualitative behavior of the system? What are the solutions of the system? And how? what is the stability? And then because you're looking at it in, in most cases a continuous system, you can map it and put it together, kind of piece it together. Mm -hmm. so, so it's been a long time since I took any differential equations. I'm a little embarrassed to, no, or, or did any differential yes. uh, equations. So yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about the setting of this theorem? So the, the Hartman uh, theorem, like I said, is a theorem that allows us to study dynamical systems in continuous time, right? And it's very powerful. And, it, uh, and it's powerful because it gives us an accurate portrayal of the flow solutions of the nonlinear system in a neighborhood around the fixed point, the equilibrium, the steady state. So I'm going to be using equilibrium, fixed point, and steady state interchangeably. And um. In some cases, and in the cases that it does help us, is where in the cases where the equilibrium that we're looking at, uh, the eigenvalues of the linearized system or the nonlinear system that we're looking at actually has uh, non-zero real parts. In other words, where we are looking at hyperbolic equilibrium points. That's okay. when we could actually apply this system, okay. uh, this theorem. Otherwise, we cannot. So it's um, that was it for certain cases. In that the standard techniques, you look at your nonlinear system, you linearize it through a process, and then you're able to then shift your equilibrium into the origin. And now you're looking at, you're considering the linearized system. And if you, that system, uh, that, like I said, like the Jacobian that you obtained through the linearization, has uh, eigenvalues that have non-zero um, real part, then you're able to apply the Harman theorem, which tells you that, that there is this homomorphism from the nonlinear system the, the flow and the solutions and the nonlinear system locally to the actual linear system, and mm. now everything that you get from the that you would normally um, be able to see and analyze in a linear system locally, you're able to do it for non, the nonlinear system. So that's where the powerful thing comes in. Like I said, the gist of it is that the solutions in the nonlinear system can be actually approximated by a linear system. 
Right. But only in the neighborhood at the equilibrium point. Sure, sure. And, and, and this is only when the case where we have hyperbolic equilibrium fixed points. But that is very powerful because that allows us to really get a handle of what's going on in locally in a neighborhood of the steady state. And for us, if we're looking at, let's say, how uh, certain diseases um, progress in the long run. Where are we heading? Where is the patient heading? Or in terms of blindness, then it really allows us to uh, be able to um, to move uh, in that direction in, in terms of understanding what is going on. And, and like I said, it's powerful because it's not just telling us about the stability, but it's actually telling us, uh, giving us a qualitative, telling us the qualitative structure of the solution and the behavior, right, of your solutions locally are the same in the linear case than in the nonlinear case because of this topological equivalence. That's pretty remarkable, but I guess the neighborhood might be pretty small, right? I mean, right, the neighborhood, the neighborhood is small, right? Sure. In, in, in linear systems, that's the thing that you have, you, you have plenty of different um, equilibrium and it's around those neighborhoods, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. again, remember, your solutions in the uh, phase space are, are changing continuously. Sure. So then you're able to kind of piece, um, map together what's going on, more or less. But for sure, you know what is going on in the long term. Behavior, mm-hmm. you know what's going on around that neighborhood, and for different given initial conditions, which is really key uh, in in math applications because sometimes we're asking what happens for different initial conditions, right? What are the steady states? What are the solutions look in the long run? What are the what what are things? Um, what what is going on for different initial conditions? Mm-hmm. So if you're modeling the retina, I mean, how many how many equations are we talking? I mean, how how big are these systems? Well, that's the thing. Uh, in a very in a most simplified case, where let's say you're able to say divide the the photoreceptors into the uh, into the rods and cones, mm-hmm. then then you have two populations. Okay. And then let's say in one of the cases we're looking at um the the flow of nutrients, so we are also considering the uh. Retinal pigment epithelium cells, which is another population. So you have three equations mm-hmm. in that case. That's mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. a very um, more uh, kind of simplistic uh, situation, but it's a situation where we actually have been able to to really get a sense of what's going on in terms of degeneration with these two classes of photoreceptors that undergo a mutation. So one of the um, diseases that I work on is retinitis pigmentosa. Mm-hmm. And the reason why that is a very complicated kind of case that we haven't been able to really get a handle on and be able to come with their better therapies and better um, ways of stopping degeneration of the photoreceptors. In fact, there is no cure for uh, stopping photoreceptors from degenerating. It's because the mutation happened in the rods. The rods are the ones that are ill, yet the cones die, which are perfectly healthy. And trying to understand how they're, how is it that the rods actually are communicating with the cones that ends up also killing them. It was an important part, and with a very simplistic model for a non-disease case, we were able to uh, to actually before biologically it was discovered this link that in fact the photoreceptors produce this protein, or that is called the rod-derived compatibility factor that helps the, the the cone survive, and we were able to show that mathematically just by looking at analyzing the equilibria and being able to look at different things in the long run in the invariant spaces and and be able to, sh- to show what we know just in general from basic biology of what happens to the, to the rods and the cones, and then realize that the commu- communication had to be a one-way interaction from the rods to the cones. So that's one of the, the models that we had. And then once we had 
that handle, we actually were able to introduce the disease and then look at a four-dimensional system. Mm-hmm. Now, we're looking at internally at the metabolic process inside the rot, the cones because there's a metabolic process. So, so the rods produce this protein. Mm-hmm. How is that protein taken by the rods and what does it do once inside? What once is it inside the rods? Mm-hmm. And um, for that, we really need to look inside the metabolic process and the kinetics of the cones and also the rods. And in there, then you're looking at, uh, if you're just considering the cones, you're looking at uh, 11 to 12 differential equations. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> With many parameters. So at that point, we're going to a very more high dimension. And that's where we currently are right. looking at that. But that has given us a lot of insight, not just in how the rods help the cones, but how is it that other processes are getting influenced and getting affected? Mm-hmm. And again, this where the Harman and the where the Hartman Grumman theorem applies is to autonomous systems, where time is not excluded in there, mm-hmm. in the equations. Okay. This is fascinating. Math gets this uh, kind of this rap for being really hard, but then you think like math is so much simpler than this biological system. Yeah. Where, like <laughs> you know, your your rods being sick can make your cones die. Like I just can't get over that. Yeah. <laughs> but but I think the mathematics is essential because there's mm-hmm. sometimes that there's a big cost in taking certain experiments to the lab just to mm-hmm. be able to understand what is going on. There's a cost, there's a time dependent, and math bypasses that. So once yeah. you have a mathematical model that that is able to predict things, and that's why you start with things that are already known. Many times the first set of models that, are, that I create are, are models that show what we already know. They're mm-hmm. not giving us any new insight. But it's just to know that the foundation is ready, and then we could build on to now introduce the new things and be able to ask them questions about things that we don't know. Because then once we're able to do that, it really is, it really is able to guide us to places or at least indicate what kind of uh, lab studies and experiments should be run and what kind of things should be focused on. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, one of the things that we've been doing. For example, one of the collaborators that I work with is the Vision Institute of Paris. So the, the institute and the director in there and the director of genetics as well. And we have this collaboration where I think working together has really helped their guide their experiments and their understanding of where they need to be looking at, just as it, uh, as it helps me really understand, okay, what are the type of um, systems that we really need to consider and what are the things that we could neglect that we don't have to really focus on. And uh, I think that, I think that the thing in mathematics is, is very powerful. It's really powerful to, to have in, uh, in biological systems, I think. Yeah. And, and I said in my, in my favorite uh, theorem can be used to gain insight into photoreceptor degeneration. Mm-hmm. In, a, in, in very complicated systems where we, because I think another thing that I said about the Gorman, the um, Hartman Gorman, uh, Gorman theorem, that one of the things that um, is really powerful is that you don't have to find a solution to get a qualitative under, a solution to the nonlinear system to get an understanding of what's going on and to be able to get insight into the qualitative behavior of those solutions. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that is what is really um, powerful. Do you have any questions? <laughs> so, I mean, a lot, but um, I think, so I, something I always think is interesting about applied mathematicians is that often they end up working in really different application areas. So did you start out um, in 
like looking at retinas and that kind of um, biological system? Or did you start out somewhere else in applied math and gradually move your way over there? Well, when I started in applied math, what I really liked was dynamical systems. It really interested me, dynamical and And yes, the first, the first um, project that I worked with as a graduate student was actually looking at the cornea and how different light intensities affect the developing cornea. And for that, then I had to learn the physiology of the eye and the physiology of the retina. Mm-hmm. But then, uh, so I did that for graduate school. And then once I started with, uh, initially, once I went out of graduate school, initially I was working, for example, as my, in my postdoc, I was working on how different fanatic, fanatic groups get formed. Oh, wow. Really mm-hmm. different application. Yeah. Right. yeah, which is in Los Alamos. I was working on how different fanatic groups get, uh, what are, what are the, the sources of power that allows groups they can become terrorists, for example, mm-hmm. to really become strong. What are the and what are the competing forces? So it was more a sociological application, mm-hmm. but again using dynamical systems to try to understand it. And then um, later on, I move on to more general area of math biology, looking at different at other different types of systems and diseases. But then I went back through a, an undergraduate project in an RU. Usually, the way I, uh, I work with the undergraduates, I make them be the ones that ask the question. Mm-hmm. select the application and I tell them you have to go and learn all, of, all about it because you're going to come and teach me and mm-hmm. then from there I'm going to help you formulate the, the the questions that could be put into a mathematical equation or that could be modeled somehow mm-hmm. and they were very interested in learning um, they wanted to do something with a PDE and they thought well the, and then something with a, the retina and they thought that the retinitis pigmentosa would be perfect for modeling with a PDE and be able to analyze it that way and as I learn more about the disease, it actually cannot. The, the, the interesting thing is when then that um, when the cones begin to die, like I said, the rats are the ones that are sick. But when the cones begin to die, is really there is no spatial dependence anymore. They don't die in a in a way that you could see like this spatial dependence is really more random and is more dependent on the fact that there, there is this uh, lack of protein that is not being synthesized by the rats anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's not in, in so and in, in many times what happens is the there's this first wave of, of death of photoreceptors where the where the rods die, and when there's most of them are gone, when ninety percent of them are gone, then the cones begin to die, mm-hmm. and then there's uh there's all these other things about how you know yes you could think about it, you could think about waves but in the velocity of them but there is not this spatial dependence. It's not really initially at the beginning of the disease it is, but that's only when the only the rods are dying. Mm-hmm. But when we really are interested about asking the question about why is it the cone type, there's not that case anymore. It's sort of a uniformly distributed death mm-hmm. pattern, as it were. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, so what I love about this is, you know, here, here, here's a problem that uh, basically a second year calculus student can understand in some sense. You know, you have two populations, and we, we teach them this all the time. You have two populations, and they're interacting in some way. What's the long-term behavior? Um, But there's still so many sophisticated questions you can ask and complicated systems there. Um, uh, Yeah, I can see why your undergrads were interested in this because they they understood it immediately, at least that it could be applied. And then then they brought this to you, and and now you're hopefully going to cure RP, right? Right. Well, that was the thing that you could could understand. And another thing, you could understand and you could use math that is not very high level mm-hmm. to start to get your hands dirty. Mm-hmm. And of course, the more, like for example, now that we're looking at this multi-level layer where you're looking at the molecular level and also at the cellular level, sure. then you're really asking about multi-scale kind of questions mm-hmm. and how can we better, you know, uh, 
analyze the system mm-hmm. when you have uh, multi- multiple scales, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's also sometimes questions about delay. So now once you actually, the, the more uh, focused and the more um, detailed that your model becomes, the more difficult the mathematics become. Sure. And, and so there is, and then, and then there is also questions, for example, like without the mathematics, there's quite, there's a lot of, a lot of interesting dynamics that are going on that without, I'm sorry, without the biology that you could analyze with mathematics, mm-hmm. right? Where you have a, where now you, you, because I, I, and we did a project like that with a collaborator where the parameters space that we were looking at was very small and was not really relevant biologically, but the mathematics were very interesting. We had all this different behavior. We had not, not just, Equal, not equal, not just equilibrium points, but we had periodic solution, torus, we had all this, and what is going on, and, and, it happened, and a lot of it happened in a very small region, mm. and then it just became more of a mathematical kind of analysis rather than a biological one. Yeah, very sure. cool. Yeah. So another part of this program is that we like to ask our guests to pair their theorem with something, oh, you know, food, beverage, music, art, anything like that. So have you chosen a pairing for the Hartman-Grobman theorem? Yeah, um, and, I, and I thought about it a lot, and I thought about it because, like I said, it, it is, it's a, such a powerful theorem, but I, and, then, and I go back to the idea of it's addicting. I mean, I think anyone who works in dynamical <laughs> systems in, 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 in a the nonlinear case, right, in a continuous time frame, definitely utilize this theorem. We utilize it. So we come to a point that, we, we are doing it automatically. So mm-hmm. I thought, what is something that I consider very addicting? That yet, yet it looks very simple, right? It's elegant but simple. But once you have it, it's very addicting. And I could not think of anything else but the um, what is it called? The, um, the Tennessee whiskey cake. <laughs> okay. Have you ever had it? No, 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 no. no. But it sounds um, dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's delicious. It's funny. I, I don't like whiskey, right? And I had it. Uh, when I went to um, San Antonio to mm-hmm. give a talk one time, mm-hmm. and I, I was like, "Well, okay, everyone wanted it. I figure I should mm-hmm. rather than go with." It. I usually pick chocolate because that's my uh, favorite. So, yeah, that's I, my I love chocolate. <laughs> I love chocolate, and I said, "Well, let me try it. It's the most delicious thing." But now I wanna, I wanna be able to bake it and make it. I, I love it. I, I mean, and then what? I have a piece, and I want more. <laughs> okay, so 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 describe this cake a little bit. What I mean, so uh, obviously I get that it has bourbon in it, but but what is it is like? Well, a, so then the, the, the way it's served is served with a vanilla ice. It's served warm. It okay. has vanilla ice cream. Okay. And, uh, it has uh, nuts, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and it has um, this kind of uh, butterscotch or something like chocolate sauce over it. Okay. And then uh, and it's very moist. Mm-hmm. Right, so it has the different layers, right? And I also think, well, in terms of complexity, right, it has these different layers, right? Sure. But in order for you to really get the sense of the, 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 the power of it, you have to kind of cut, go through all the layers and have all of them in the same bite. Mm. And I feel like that with a perfect theorem, right? That, that the power of it is really to apply it to something that is, that, that has the nonlinearity that is really complex that you know that you might not even be able to get a handle on the solutions analytically mm-hmm. but you still want to be able to say what is going on in the, what is the behavior where are we heading mm-hmm. to then be able to somehow infer what the solutions are through a different means or go around it, and it gives you that kind of um, ability and this yeah. is where whiskey so, helps I know, <laughs> the whiskey. <laughs> well the whiskey the whiskey is the addicting part right <laughs> so have you made this cake at all or do you usually order it when you're out 
No, usually I order it out, but I want to make it. So my mom's birthday is coming up in August 3rd, and I'm, I'm going to try to make it. So I was telling my husband, we're going to have to make it throughout the, the next few days because I'm pretty sure we're going to go through a few trials. Yeah, yeah like, absolutely. I love yeah. them. I, I can never get it right. <laughs> Even the mistakes will be rewarding. And again, the whiskey like helps. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it was an interesting question because I thought, what can, it, what, what can I pair it with, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought... Uh, the only thing I could think is something that is addictive or something that has multiple layers of multiple layers, but that all of them have to be taken at once. That it allows you to look at all, all of them at once. And this cool. fits perfectly. Sounds great. Well, I've learned a lot today. Uh, I, I never thought about modeling the eye in terms of you know populations of rods and cones. But I mean, now that you say it, I guess sure, of course. But uh, <laughs> uh, and now I have to look up Tennessee whiskey cake. This is. Uh, yeah, it's really good. Now you should try it. Okay, all right. I'm, I'm going to go do that. Yeah. yeah. It's almost lunch here, so you're definitely uh, making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for thanks joining us, Thanks a lot Erica. for being here. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, letting, for having me here. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Mann. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chan Nguyen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at Nivik that's Kevin spelled backwards followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M, that's at My Favorite Theorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics.